The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So tonight on Human Voices Wakeus, we will enter the world of libraries and learning and education. And in the first part, we will follow Jonathan Bate in his book about Shakespeare and see what he thinks was in Shakespeare's library. What were the things that William Shakespeare wanted to hold on to the most? And he imagines if Shakespeare was retiring and leaving London and going back to Stratford, what were the things that he would want to put in his luggage. And in the second part, we'll go back to ancient Egypt and look at what archaeologists have found in the libraries of the temples there. And we'll see what kinds of texts, what kinds of literature, what kinds of help sort of for the locals who were dealing with issues on the Nile and nasty creatures like crocodiles and such. What were the things that they kept in the libraries of the temples from the sacred to the just mundane and profane? And in the very last section tonight, we will hear two poems from Seamus Heaney, both of them about learning to discover words, one of them specifically about his early education. So let's get down to that right after this message. It seems that one of the keys to Shakespeare's genius, one of the ways of understanding his creativity, how he was able to do what he did for about 30 years and at the pace at which he was able to do it, shaking off uh, six huge volumes of, of blank verse, uh, thousands of pages of blank verse in 30 years, um, I think one of the ways that we can understand it is by looking at what scholars have to say about his reading habits. Jonathan Bate, in his book Soul of the Age, A Biography of the Mind of William Shakespeare, says something that I've mentioned before on this podcast in relation to Peter Aykroyd's biography of Shakespeare, where Aykroyd says something like the same thing. Uh, Jonathan Bate says that Shakespeare was an opportune reader, he snapped up phrases and ideas from his reading, storing them in his capacious memory. He may not have bothered with underlining and with marginal annotations. And as he borrowed words and stories, so he may well have borrowed, rather than bought, some of his books. So one of the ideas that we sort of have to get out of our minds is of the the prolific author of 2023, or just the the author who is living in New York or basically anywhere now, uh, over the last 50 or 100 years in America or in Europe or 
again, anywhere you might be able to think of, where you imagine their apartment or their house just having a room or a few rooms or maybe even an entire floor that is dedicated to books, floor to ceiling, thousands of books, um, or just the desire, I'm thinking of the Library of America, the desire to have, you know, all of Philip Roth's books lined up on a shelf, all of Virginia Woolf's books lined up on a shelf, and also her diaries, and also the uh, facsimiles of her novels, and all of this stuff. Um, Shakespeare does not seem to have cared much about any of the equivalent of that, even in his own day. And in a uh, a chapter in Jonathan Bates' book called Shakespeare's Small Library, it's a fairly long chapter and fairly detailed, and I just want to share part of it here. And it is Jonathan Bates' imagining of what it would have been what would Shakespeare's essential library have been? Um, if he's someone who uh, didn't need to read an entire book, he didn't need to read the entire Bible, for instance, if what he did was uh, skim anthologies, skim story collections, skim poetry collections, and such things like this, maybe even skimmed Ovid for plots, for stories, for ideas, and then when he got the idea, he got what he needed, he put it down, and he didn't need to do the rest of it. Maybe that is what allowed him to write as much as he did. Uh, it's another question entirely how he was able to write so much, so well, in the way that he did. But that's another episode. Uh, but what Jonathan Bate imagines here, he says, Let us imagine Shakespeare, the very end of his career, sorting through his book chest, my guess is that it would have contained no more than about 40 volumes and possibly as few as 20, excluding copies, printed copies of his own plays. And this is only part of what he has to say. Uh, I have suggested that his most prized books were his copies of Golding's translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses and of North's translation of Plutarch's Lives. The details in Prospero's borrowings from Medea's incantation seem too specific in the Tempest to be attributable to a vague memory of studying the original Latin in school some 35 years earlier. And so it is a fair assumption, then, that along with the stout English version by Golding, the book chest would have contained a Latin Ovid. And given that Shakespeare quoted from uh, Ovid's Heroides in Latin in The Taming of the Shrew, which was uh, based and based The Rape of Lucrece on a story in the untranslated Fasti, and seems to have known the Amores and the Ars Amatoria, he may well have possessed several volumes of Ovid in Latin, some with commentaries. And so, for example, certain details in The Rape of Lucrece seem at first glance to come not from Ovid's version of the story, but from the Roman historian Livy's account of the history of Rome. But on further investigation, however, they appear actually to be derived from quotations out of Livy in the extensive notes to an edition of Fasti. There's a great example right there. He doesn't even need to read Livy. What he needs to do is read a footnote about a plot 
from a from an account of Livy uh, out of a book of Ovid's poetry. And here he says, uh, Jonathan Bates says, the story of the Trojan War fascinated Shakespeare, hardly surprisingly, since it is the magnificent foundation of Western literature. Allusions to Troy are to be found in the early history plays and in Titus Andronicus. The description of a picture of Sinon, who insinuated the wooden horse into Troy, is the poetic high point of the rape of Lucrece. And the player in Hamlet recites his great set-piece on the death of Priam and the madness of grief-stricken grief Hecuba. Achilles, Ajax, Agamemnon, Ulysses, Hector, Paris, and the rest are all brought to life on stage in Troilus and Cressida. The matter of Troy would have been somewhere there in the book chest, but in what form? It is sometimes forgotten that the latter books of his prized Metamorphoses of Ovid, they do include a version of the Troy story, written in part as a riposte to the Virgilian retelling in the Aeneid. Aeneas's account to Dido of his escape from the burning city in Book Two of the Aeneid was etched onto Shakespeare's memory with an overlay from Marlowe and Nash's play, Dido, Queen of Carthage. But that does not mean that he owned the books. Uh, speaking of uh, why Aeneid, uh, Book Two of the Aeneid, would have been etched on Shakespeare's memory, uh, Jonathan Bate Bate goes back constantly in this book to what Shakespeare was likely to have learned um, or what he is likely to have studied while learning Latin uh, as a child and a young man in Stratford-upon-Avon. So again, that does not mean that he owned the books. He could easily have remembered Virgil from the schoolroom and Marlowe from the theater. The crabbed language of Troilus and Cressida may suggest a debt as well, or a parody of, the convoluted syntax and the overblown vocabulary of George Chapman's Seven Books of the Iliad, which was published in 1598. The arguments and insults in the Greek camp may echo uh, the contentions of Achilles and Agamemnon in Chapman's first book of the Iliad, but I rather doubt that Shakespeare would have had the patience to read Chapman all the way through. This is another source that may well boil down to nothing more than a glance at the bookstall and the instant absorption of a style ripe for unpicking into that capacious memory. And I think of what I'm doing right now, uh, coming to the end of the great year, this long poem that I'm writing, and realizing that I need to uh, do my equivalent of Shakespeare, or of, uh, of Homer's hexameters. And so what have I set myself to do? That is to read about four pages of Richmond Lattimore's translation of the Iliad every day, just to let it simmer in my mind. Uh, meanwhile, what we have Jonathan Bate imagining Shakespeare doing is uh, coming upon George Chapman's Seven Books of the Iliad in a bookstall, um, not really having the patience to to uh, read all of it, and just reading what he needed to, to get a sense of style, and being able to, as he would have been, as playwrights and actors at the time would have been, to memorize uh, what he found most powerful or what he thought he needed, and then just 
putting the book back. That's another thing we don't really need to imagine Shakespeare doing, of finding pleasure in just going to a used bookstore. Um, perhaps he's had a bad day. Many of us who have bad days or are just tired or have moments to ourselves, um, it's still so immensely relaxing, isn't it? To find a good bookstore, to find a good used bookstore or a new bookstore, a bookstore that we trust, and just browse along the shelves for a half hour or an hour and be surprised by what we find. Shakespeare, it does not seem, uh, doesn't seem like he had any need to do anything like that. He knew what he needed and uh, he found what he wanted, took it, and immediately got to the writing, or so it would seem. Uh, the weightiest volume in Shakespeare's collection would have been Hollinshed's 1587 Chronicles, which had served him so well through all the history plays. If he was organized in the arrangement of his books, he would have placed it next to Edward Hall's Union of the Two Noble Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York, to which he had often cross-referred, and where he read Thomas More's memorably written but wholly one-sided life of Richard III. Turning from the classics to the chronicles to the Christian tradition, we can surmise that Shakespeare's chest would have contained a Bible in the Geneva translation, with its printed marginal annotations. The phrasing of Shakespeare's biblical allusions is occasionally closer to the officially sanctioned Bishop's Bible than the Geneva Bible, but that would have come from the memory of listening in church. The phraseology of the Book of Common Prayer and the homilies also came from church, though it is probable that there would have been a pocket prayer book somewhere among his possessions. However secular his disposition sometimes seems, in comparison with many of his pious contemporaries, he would not have disposed of these basic tools of the spiritual life and of the literary life. He had to have been aware of the literary value of the poetry and the prose of the Hebrew and the Christian Bibles. Another book that Shakespeare would almost certainly have taken home to Stratford to reread and meditate upon in his otium, his retirement, was Florio, Florio's translation of Montaigne, which we know from Gonzalo's borrowing was on his mind at the time of the Tempest and which was also formative of the philosophical vision of King Lear. And here we say, uh, here Jonathan Bates says that William Painter's Palace of Pleasure, published in 1566 and expanded in 1575, was an anthology of 101 pleasant histories and excellent novels translated out of a range of Greek, Roman, Italian, and French writers. It was there that Shakespeare found an Englishing of more than a dozen stories from Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron, one of which he dramatized in All's Well That Ends Well. Possible traces from other stories in Palace of Pleasure can be found elsewhere in Shakespeare. The volume had long been notorious for being, quote, ransacked to furnish the playhouses of London. So we know that other authors are doing the same thing. Uh, the kind of book that whose equivalent these days uh, 
quote-unquote serious authors, serious writers out there might turn their nose up at, might sneer at. 101 pleasant stories and excellent novels translated out of the Greek, Roman, Italian, and French writers. Uh, Shakespeare, on the other hand, who is just looking for good stories, would have snapped that up while the rest of us uh, may have perhaps wasted our time uh, reading the originals or, or translations of the entire entirety of these Greek, Roman, Italian, and French stories. Um, and then there is the question of play books, and this is wonderful here. Uh, with a memory trained in school and sharpened by the need to learn lines for the plays in which he acted, Shakespeare would indeed have absorbed much of the rep repertoire of the English theater of his day through the ear in the theater, and so he is unlikely to have bothered to buy and read many plays, and even when he did, would he have kept them? The suggestion being that he really had no need to. He had all of it, or at least what he most needed in his head. And this very last passage here. Um, as well as the durable works, there would have been casual reading, which is harder to trace. Although we don't get much of a sense that Shakespeare read for pleasure, uh, considering how much he wrote and the way in which he wrote, uh, gathering things, bits and pieces from books and conversations and such like that. Um, it doesn't seem like he was left with much time to read for pleasure. And it's interesting that when I heard an interview with uh, Peter Ackroyd, who wrote my favorite biography of Shakespeare, uh, someone asked him uh, if he reads for pleasure. And of course, Ackroyd says, I, I don't read for pleasure. Uh, I write for pleasure. He said something along those lines. And so he reads in order to write. And that seems to be what Shakespeare does as well. Um, so the casual reading, which is harder to trace. So for instance, while he was writing The Tempest in the year 1611, one of his several acquaintances who were associated with the Virginia Company, the Earl of Pembroke or a member of the Diggers family perhaps, they passed him one or more of the Bermuda pamphlets describing the shipwreck of Sir Thomas Gates in the Caribbean. He snapped up a few nautical details, began imagining a tempest, an island, a new world of his own, and then in all probability he gave the pamphlet back or tossed it aside. He's not sitting there, again like me, taking notes, 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 before he even bothers uh, to start writing. Uh, reports of other events that fed into other plays, a grain riot in the Midlands for Coriolanus, the voyage of a ship called the Tiger for Macbeth, these all may have reached him verbally in the pub, as it were, or through penny broadsheets. Ephemera of this kind drifted on the surface of his world, but was not anchored to the depths of his imagination. The above list could be divided into big books, such as Holinshed and Plutarch, and small ones, such as the novellas and slim volumes of poetry. But would he have bothered to take the small ones back to Stratford? One could imagine him slipping tales such as Pandosto and Rosalind into his luggage as gifts for the grandchildren. That would leave the larger ones, Golding's Ovid, 
North's Plutarch, Florio's Montaigne, the Geneva Bible, Chaucer, Caxton's Trojan History, the Chronicles of Hollinshed and Hall, Samuel Daniel's poetry, especially his Wars of the Roses epic, perhaps Sidney's Arcadia, even though its style was rather too courtly for his taste, and conceivably either or both of Tavener's reduced adagia rendered into English, and La Promode's The French Academy, also in translation. And finally, the recent acquisition of Cervantes in English. These were the books that mattered most deeply to him, maybe a dozen volumes at most, but infinite in their riches. These speculations are, of course, a biographical fantasy, but the point is a serious one, because thanks to his undoubted friendship with Richard Field and his very probable acquaintance with John Florio, Richard Field being a friend, a childhood friend from back in Stratford who later was involved in the book trade in London, uh, because of these friendships, Shakespeare had easy access to these books. This body of literature offers a deep insight into the mental world in which he lived. If one bears in mind the method of close reading in which he was trained at school, not to mention his prodigious memory for both the plays that he saw or acted in and the other books he devoured and disposed of more casually, then there need be no anxiety about the idea of a middle-class provincial grammar school boy having the intellectual resources to write the plays. When we take in all of Egyptian history from just before 3000 BC and all the way up to 30 BC when Egypt becomes a province of Rome and in the centuries following where it just sort of peters out, when we consider that the most generous estimate of what literacy may have looked like in ancient Egypt, the most generous estimate is maybe 5% of the people there could read or write hieroglyphs or the demotic script, the easier to read and write demotic script, sort of like our cursive. When we see that it's 5% is the, the high end and that the low end is probably closer to just under 1%, we can understand why reading and writing and, and even just the hieroglyphs themselves, just, the, just as looking at them, was considered something special, considered something magical, considered something to be from the gods. If you go to any museum that has uh, any artifacts from ancient Egypt, one of my favorite things to look at is to try to find if they have a statue of an Egyptian scribe, usually seated cross-legged with the palette across their lap and usually they have rolls of fat on their stomach and that's to show that they don't need to worry about food and that they are doing just fine and that they are in or that they have reached the upper classes. Uh, but also sometimes you'll see the scribe and then next to him or just sort of looking over his shoulder is the god Toth, the god of writing, who is also usually pictured in these scenes 
or in these uh, statues, these groups of statues as a baboon. Um, when we consider what writing and reading uh, meant to these people, and that, uh, as I think I mentioned in the episodes on the great myths of Egypt uh, many years ago, three years ago now, where if there was a hieroglyph that featured a dangerous animal or an animal uh, or a creature like a snake that uh, is sort of bad luck out of their stories, they would sort of make the hieroglyph, if they were carving it, in, especially into the temple walls or the tomb walls, they would sort of make it imperfect so that it couldn't somehow uh, rise out and, uh, and cause them harm. Or the idea in their tombs where, quite literally, the idea was that sure, we have these places set aside for the relatives to actually bring food and offerings to the deceased. But barring that, if that doesn't happen anymore, we have these glorious scenes of food and feasting that were literally meant to feed uh, the dead. You can see what a reverence and what a mystique that writing and art and literacy would have had for these people. And that is one of the reasons why it's interesting to look at what it was that they did write down and what we know about what they decided to, to save and what we know about the class of people who did this. What we know is that this would also would have, have given uh, the, whole, the whole enterprise a kind of mystique, is that uh, writing and reading and literacy and all of this would have been centralized and you would have found it most often around temples. The populations that lived around temples would have been the ones that you would have seen this most often. So tonight what I wanted to do is just read a short section from a wonderful book by Serge Saunaron called The Priests of Ancient Egypt. And this is one of those books published by Cornell University Press on ancient Egypt. They have a good series of them, and they're fairly cheap because uh, a lot of this stuff is not uh, easy to come by. Um, and this is one of the ones that is. So definitely take a look at it, and you'll understand why when I read this passage from it. Uh, one of the things that Serge Saunaron says is, with sacred knowledge thus defined, what information do we have regarding it? What directions did it take and what areas did it cover? And the first area that he covers is the houses of life and temple libraries. And this is what he has to say about that. He says, we can begin to answer these questions by examining what is known of the houses of life and the temple libraries. The houses of life were institutions that remain somewhat mysterious to us. Egyptians spoke of them without furnishing details, so that it is evident that they understood one another, which is not the case with us. In other words, uh, these places were so well known to ancient Egyptians that when they did write about them, they did not need to elaborate or describe them, because it was just understood that people knew what went on in these places. Uh, we are certain that they existed at Memphis, Abydos, El Amarna, Achmim, Koptos, Esna, and Edfu. And it seems likely that every temple of some size had a house of life annexed to it. These buildings seem to have housed organizations where the sacred knowledge was elaborated, 
and where texts were studied, copied, and collected. And you'll notice as I go along here, if, if I wasn't talking about Egypt, you might think that I was talking about a medieval scriptorium where manuscripts were also copied by monks and such. Uh, perhaps, to a certain extent, instruction was given there. We know at least of a teacher of the House of Life at Abydos in the second story of Setna, and we are informed of a youth there named C. Osire, and it was said of him that he was put in school, and after a short time he surpassed the scribe who had been given to him for instruction. And the boy C. Osire began to recite writings with the scribes of the House of Life in the Temple of Ptah. And indeed, if you go, to, go looking for uh, anthologies of Egyptian literature, ancient Egyptian literature, one of the most colorful ones and the most entertaining ones and the most, uh, I suppose, humanizing ones are just called the instructions of so-and-so or the instructions to so-and-so. Usually a young boy is being told by his father or his teacher, this is all the work that you will not have to do, you know, uh, working in the fields, building, doing all of this hard labor. You are entering a good life and you are lucky to be entering this life. And this, on the other hand, is what you'll be able to do. And it describes the life of the scribe. It's some wonderful pieces there that you find all across the ancient Near East, from Egypt to Mesopotamia, these instructional texts that are preserved for us. And it goes on to say, but it is also possible that the young man simply kept the company of professional scribes to train himself or even, as would be consistent with the general tone of the story, to amaze them with his already superhuman knowledge. The activity of the House of Life consisted essentially in preparing the religious works necessary to the cult, copying old manuscripts. The scribes would correct errors and make restorations in the lacuna and, and the worm-eaten passages. They put together theological and liturgical texts, that were unique to each temple. They prepared books of protective magical spells, as well as astronomical tables, and they turned out copies of the Book of the Dead by the thousands. And that's the other thing. Uh, when you start off, this is the so-called democratization of death that you find in ancient Egypt. If you go back to the pyramid texts, about, 30, about 2500 BC, uh, it is literally what it says, these spells to, to help the deceased kings uh, are carved literally into the walls of the pyramids. And then centuries later, they begin to be carved, not carved, but painted onto the coffins so that it's not just for the kings, but it can also be for other nobles, other rich people. And finally, what you have uh, entering this period, uh, getting close to contact with uh, Greece and later on with Rome, what you have is uh, not on the walls and not in the coffins, but in these rolled up papyri. The papyrus of Ani is usually what we hear about when we're talking about the Book of the Dead. So you would have thousands of these copies being copied out of uh, the Book of the Dead, and you would just leave the name, the space for the name blank, where uh, either the deceased person was expected to add that in the afterlife as they are being tested and so forth. Uh, between sessions of copying these, all of these, all of this stuff, 
these scribes engaged in lively discussions of philosophical and religious problems, nor did they disdain medicine or literary activities, for they did more than just copy old texts mechanically in these ateliers. They wrote many an original text or a theological exposition as a result of their reflections and their fruitful exchanges of viewpoints. Some of the most beautiful spiritual and moral texts that we have sprang from the reflections and the convictions of obscure scribes whose names will forever remain unknown to us. In addition to the scribes, there were certain specialists in the houses of life. There was the ritual slaughterer, for example, in charge of the execration ceremonies, whose task was the ritual slaughter of animals that embodied evil. There was also the staff of artists and decorators who covered the temple walls with inscriptions and bas-reliefs and then painted the hieroglyphs and the scenes and who also repaired damaged sections of walls and the texts that were there. In short, we may presume that everything written on the walls of the temples, all the papyri needed for the rituals and all the elements of priestly learning, they all emanated from the houses of life. Lists from the temple libraries reveal what these elements were. The scribes of the houses of life prepared the drafts of the texts that the sculptors carved on the walls of the temples, and in their archives they kept the originals of the most important theological texts. They were also called on to write the most commonly used papyri, those needed by the priests to carry out the daily cult ritual, and I imagine also the funerary texts as well. These papyri were kept in the temple itself, ready for use. And in many temples, small rooms have been found, usually modest in size, bearing the name House of Books. Narrow niches cut into the thickness of the walls once contained the rolls of papyrus. A sort of inventory of the works stored in these rooms was carved on the wall. And it says here, for example, is a list of the sacred books in the temple of Edfu. And I also, when I, when I read something like this, I think about the Venerable Bede. I think of uh, what learning must have been like in 8th, 9th, 10th century in England or in what became France or Germany or even in Italy, where books are rare, where literacy is rare, and you have to know what you want to hang on to. You have to know what is worth saving, what is worth keeping, what is worth passing on. And again, I ask the question, uh, we are living in an age now where words are cheap, where books are easy to find, where books of any kind and words of any kind are easy to find and nobody really pays them much mind. And um, I sort of wonder, did these people back then, did everyone who labored so much when books and words were rare, um, did they labor so much to have us do with words uh, what we are doing today? But in any case, this is the list of sacred books in the temple at Edfu. It says, the books in the great rolls of pure leather that enable the smiting of the demon, the repelling of the crocodile, the protection of the hour, the preservation of the bark, and the carrying of the bark. I presume that's the bark that they imagine crosses the, the sky each night, carrying the souls of the dead, but also the sun when it goes underground. The book of bringing out the king in procession, the book of conducting the ritual, 
the protection of the city, the house, the white crown, the throne, and the year, the book of appeasing Sakhmet, the book of driving away lions, repulsing crocodiles, and repelling reptiles. You can tell that ancient Egyptians had definite problems with lions, crocodiles, and reptiles. Um, they're not kidding about that. Um, knowing all the secrets of the laboratory, knowing the divine offerings and all their details, and all the inventories of the secret forms of the god, and all the aspects of the associated deities, which are copied daily for the temple every day, each one after the other, so that these souls of the deities will remain in this place and will not leave this temple ever. The book of the inventory of the temple, the book of the capture of enemies, the book of all the writings of combat, the book of the conduct of the temple, instructions for decorating a wall, that's important, protection of the body, the book of magical protection for the king in his palace, spells for repelling the evil eye, knowing the periodic returns of the two heavenly bodies, i.e. the sun and the moon, and a list of all the sacred places and knowing what is in them. Every ritual related to the gods leaving his temple on festival days. So you can go through that whole list and get a very good idea of what these ritual specialists uh, had to deal with, and also, on the other hand, as the case with reptiles and crocodiles and lions and the rest, what everybody outside and around, and around them also had to deal with and what they were expected to help with. In another Egyptian, in another upper Egyptian temple that at Toad, some blocks still bear the remnants of a similar inventory, and in it we find books on the entrance of the god Montu into Thebes, the ritual completing the Eye of Horus, a book of offerings on the altar of the Temple of Amun, a book of the Festival of Toth in the Temple of Khons, a ritual of the Festival of Victory, a ritual for the birth of the god, and so forth. Similar libraries have been found on the island of Philae and in the Roman period at the Temple of Esna, and in them was stored the sacred literature in use at that time. And finally, Archaeological investigation has permitted the recovery of the very works kept in one of these libraries in the little town of Teptunis in the Fayum. Among these documents, in addition to the rituals and treatises on astronomy and medicine, a certain number of literary texts written in Demotic have been identified, such as the stories of Setna, which have already been mentioned, and of Pedubaste. These are the sort of short stories that came out of ancient Egypt as well as three onomastica, i.e. collections of words classified according to their meanings, and several copies of an otherwise known book of wisdom. So let's end the night with some poetry. This is a poem by Seamus Heaney that I have never read here before called Alphabets from his 1987 book, The Haw Lantern. And just a note of what Heaney mentions about this poem as well, about his early years at school. Uh, this is what he's talking about here. He, he says at one point, I can hardly believe what I'm telling you here. It's so long ago 
and in such different circumstances. The ink in the inkwells, for example, was made up from ink powder that used to be kept in the same storeroom with the gardening tools. And here and now it strikes me that there was no running water in the school because one of my clearest memories is of being sent out with a can or big beaker of some sort down to the stream that flowed at the end of the playground in order to collect water for the mixing of the ink. And what was odd and memorable was the otherness of the school at that moment. You were only a few yards away from life in the classroom that you just left, but you felt a world away. You were outside. You had the whole sky and land to yourself. Yet there it was in front of you, the silent building. You saw it all. You saw it in all its uncanniness and had a taste of yourself and all of your own solitude and singularity. And I guess I contrast that with my own experience of grade school, uh, not only where there really wasn't a chore to do uh, that required you to go outside, but just that um, there was a big field and a big parking lot, and there was not a sense of suddenly being out in nature. It was all connected to this mid, uh, mid-20th century built uh, sort of uh, factory-looking kind of school building. But in any case, this is a poem called Alphabets by Seamus Heaney, and this is what it says. A shadow his father makes with joined hands and thumbs and fingers nibbles on the wall like a rabbit's head. He understands he will understand more when he goes to school. There he draws smoke with chalk the whole first week, then draws with the forked stick that they call a Y. This is writing. A swan's neck and a swan's back make the two he can see now as well as say. Two rafters and a cross tie on the slate are the letters some call A, some call A. There are charts, there are headlines, there is a right way to hold the pen and a wrong way. First it is copying out, and then English, marked correct with a little leaning hoe. Smells of inkwells rise in the classroom hush. A globe in the window tilts like a colored O. Declensions sang on the air like a hosanna as, column after stratified column, book one of Elementa Latina, marbled and minatory, rose up in him. For he was fostered next in a stricter school, named for the patron saint of the oak wood, where classes switched to the pealing of a bell, and he left the Latin forum for the shade of new calligraphy that felt like home. The letters of this alphabet were trees. The capitals were orchards in full bloom. The lines of scripts like briars coiled in ditches. Here, in her snooted garment and bare feet, 
all ringleted in assonance and wood notes, the poet's dream stole over him like sunlight and passed into tenebrous thickets. He learns this other writing. He is the scribe who drove a team of quills on his white field. Round his cell door the blackbirds dart and dab, and then self-denial, fasting, the pure cold. By rules that hardened the farther they reached north, he bends to his desk and begins again. Christ's sickle has been in the undergrowth. The script grows bare and Merovingian. The globe has spun. He stands in a wooden O. He alludes to Shakespeare. He alludes to graves. Time has bulldozed the school and school window. Bailers drop bales like printouts, where stooked sheaves made lambdas in the stubble once at harvest. And the delta, face of each potato pit, was padded straight and molded against frost, all gone with the omega that kept watch above each door in good luck horseshoe, yet shape note language, absolute on air, as Constantine's sky letter in hoc signo can still command him, or the necromancer who would hang from the domed ceiling of his house a figure of the world with colors in it, so that the figure of the universe and not just single things would meet his sight when he walked abroad. As from his small window, the astronaut sees all he has sprung from, the risen, aqueous, singular, lucent O, like a magnified and buoyant ovum, or like my own wide, pre-reflective stare, all agog at the plasterer on his ladder, skimming our gable and writing our name there with his trowel point, letter by strange letter. And as we know from other of Heaney's poems, very often he associates the memories, the vivid memories of childhood and the vivid memories of education, of learning to read and learning to write. He associates those things just as vividly and just as concretely, quite literally, with, um, with the work of construction, of working with your hands, of building something. And so we might as well end with my favorite poem of Seamus Heaney's. This is part two in his long sequence called Squarings from his very next book, uh, published in 1991, called Seeing Things. And look at what he does with language and with, uh, and with building work here. And then we will call it a night. This is what it says. Roof it again. Batten down, dig in, drink out of tin, know the scullery cold, a latch, a door bar, forged tongs and a grate. Touch the crossbeam, drive iron in a wall, hang a line to verify the plumb from lintel, coping stone, and chimney breast. 
relocate the bedrock in the threshold, take squarings from the recessed gable pane, make your study the unregarded floor, sink every impulse like a bolt, secure the bastion of sensation, do not waver into language, do not waver in it. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.